Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. But for today, I'd like to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, which says, There is no temptation that has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Now, so often we feel like the temptation we have is a VIP temptation. I have this special temptation that nobody else has really thought what I'm thinking. Nobody else has felt the pull or the pressure that I feel towards this thing. But the truth is that within 10 miles of right here, right now, there's 10,000 people that have felt everything you felt, that have thought everything you've thought. The devil does not have a lot of tricks. He's just got a bag with a few tricks in it, and he just kind of mixes it up but he just comes back with the same stuff again and again and again. And whatever you have felt is not abnormal. It is normal, right? But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. In other words, if the temptation comes, it's proof that God knows that you have what it takes to be victorious, right? I remember one guy telling me, he literally said, well, this is what happened. He says, I, I, I just couldn't help it. Oh, yes, you can. Flip Wilson said the devil made you do it. Well, it's a lie. He can't make you do anything. Right? Now, he might tell you he can, but he can't. When Jesus comes to the area of the Decapolis, this 10-city region, there's a man who has a legion of demons. Now, that's at least 6,000. And when that man sees Jesus, he realizes, if I can get to Jesus, I can be met set free. And he runs, he falls at Jesus' feet, and he worships him. You realize there's 6,000 demons in there telling him, go the other direction? The devil cannot make you do anything unless you surrender your will to him. He cannot make you. But with the temptation, God will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So notice it says escape. Now, when Joseph is tempted by by a woman to do something immoral, the Bible says he leaves his coat and he runs, right? Sometimes the way that you would bear it is you run. Doesn't mean you sit there in the middle of it, right, and contemplate it. In fact, we're going to talk about that in just a couple minutes. All right, so Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now, these two verses are the most important two verses about Christian victorious life anywhere in the Bible. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So the first verse says, Now I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. The the New King James says, which is your reasonable service. Other translations say, which is your spiritual worship. Now, it says you present your body to God. In other words, you say, God, I give you my body. My body is for you. I'm going to serve you and love you with my body. I give you every part of my body, all of my faculties, all my facilities. I give them to you. Now, Now, notice it says it's a living sacrifice. Now, what would happen is when they're going to sacrifice something, they kill it. Right? 
and then they put it on an altar and put fire under it. So Bible says that you are not going to be a dead sacrifice. Your body is going to be a living sacrifice. So the fire comes and your body is going to want to jump off the altar. Right? And so what do you need to do? You need to put it back on. You need to present it to God again. Right? Now, I presented my body to God this morning. I presented my body to God yesterday morning. And I probably will have to present my body to God tomorrow morning. Because my body wants to get off the altar. Right? So as often as your body wants to get off the altar, you need to keep on presenting your body to God. And notice it says that's your spiritual worship. Worship isn't just clapping or lifting your hands or getting on your knees. When you present your body to God and you say no to sin, the Bible says that is spiritual worship. Verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind, other translations say it like this, by changing the way that you think. So when you become a Christian, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So when you become a Christian, you become new. But remember your three parts, your spirit, soul, and body. Now, the part of you that becomes new is your spirit. You become new on the inside. You are a new creation. You're not trying to be. You're not hoping to be. You're not one day going to be. When you become a Christian, you are. Right? Right in here, you're saved. You're right with God. You're new. You get a new nature on the inside of you, in your spirit. However, when you become a Christian, if you're bald, you're still bald. If you're overweight, you're still overweight, right? Becoming a Christian does not affect your body. It affects your spirit, right? So your body is not going to get saved until Jesus comes back. Right? So you're a Christian in your spirit, but your body, by the way, is still a heathen. Right? Then notice it says here to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? So your mind in one, in the Bible word, one word is your soul, right? Now, what you need to do, the Bible says, is you need to be changed by changing the way that you think. In fact, the purpose of the Bible is to change the way you think, right? So David said, Psalms 119, verse 128, he said, I consider your precepts, your word, concerning all things to be right, right? Now, that's where every one of us have to get. We have to get to this place that God, God's word is God speaking to us, right? And God is right about everything that he talks about, right? It says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, every part of scripture is God-breathed and is useful in one way or another. Shows us truth, exposes our rebellion, corrects our mistakes, trains us to live God's way, through the word, we're put together in shape for the task God has for us. Now, notice it says that it shows us the truth. It exposes our rebellion, corrects our mistakes, trains us to live God's way. Right? So it's going to change the way that we think. I've had people 
a number of times come up and they'll say something similar to this. Well, pastor, what do you think about? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And And I don't say it, but this is what I think. I think, well, who cares what I think? I don't care what you think. And I'm not being mean, all right? I don't care what you think. I don't even care what I think. What matters is what God thinks, right? And and what we've got to do is we've got to find out what does God think. That's what David's saying. He said, God, you're right about everything you think about, talk about. He says, you're right when you talk about forgiveness. You're right when you talk about money. You're right when you talk about marriage. You're right when you talk about forgiveness. You're right when you talk about raising children. God, you are right every time you say anything about anything. And when we disagree with God, we're wrong. And we need to change the way that we think. So in James 1, verse 21, it says, Receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your soul. So God's word is able to save your what? Your soul or your mind. When you become a Christian, your spirit gets saved, but your soul is not saved. Your soul is your mind. And when you become a Christian, you're as messed up as you were 10 minutes before. You got stinking thinking, right? And you need to change the way you think. And the Bible is given to us to change the way that we think, right? Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, right? So it's going to talk about how do we do this? How do we confront wrong thoughts? How do we confront the enemy, right? The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, this is really talking about what spiritual warfare is, right? Now, some people have gone to extremes. Um, You know, the Bible says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the wickedness in this world, and against spiritual spirits in high places. Now, there have been people, they've gone around, they've rented airplanes, and fly around a city so they can get against, come and pray against spirits in high places. Well, that's not, that's not what the Bible's talking about. Right? Don't do that. All right? Don't do that. But the Bible is telling us that what spiritual warfare is, is it's, listen, casting down arguments and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. In other words, spiritual warfare is controlling your thoughts. In Isaiah 26 and verse 3, it says, and you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Whose mind is stayed on you. That's the Hebrew word, yes, sir. And it literally means your imagination. It's in your imagination, your thoughts. God will keep you in perfect peace when your thoughts are stayed on him. When you're thinking God's thoughts, you're going to stay in perfect peace. But we've got to control our thoughts. Uh, It's been said that it's Martin Luther who said this first. But he said, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. So you can't stop thoughts from coming, but you can stop thinking about them. You can reject them. Um, In Philippians 4 and verse 8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, meditate, think on these things. So what Paul is telling us 
is that we need to restrict the thoughts that come into our mind. When they do not agree with the word of God, with the spirit of God, with the kingdom of God, we need to reject them. Kind of picture your mind as a parking lot. You don't let every thought come in and park. If it doesn't agree with God, you reject it. You pull it down. You cast it down. You cast it down with the word of God. When that thought says something that's contrary to God's word, you take God's word and you cast that thought down. In fact, as Paul is talking about this in the book of Ephesians, he says to take the sword of the spirit. Now, the word there in the Greek is the rhema of the spirit, the word of God. Now, the rhema of God is not all the Bible. Right? It's the part of the Bible that has become real on the inside of you. So I think that some people, when they grab their sword of the Spirit, it's kind of like a little pocket knife about that big. And they're coming, devil, ta-ta-ta. But they don't have the word on the inside. They just got just a little bit. There are those people who say, well, I know the Bible says someplace. They don't have it memorized. They haven't, they haven't gotten it to where it's a part of them. Right? Where other people, they've taken that word and it's on the inside, right? And it's just like a great big one of those swords, you know, where you got to take with two hands, right? To, to, to fight and defeat the enemy. Isaiah 55, verse 6 Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. So often we think the only way I can be away from God is in the things that I do. But the Bible says we can be away from God in our thoughts, right? So what do we need to do? The wicked needs to forsake his ways, the unrighteous man his thoughts. We need to get rid of those thoughts and get God's thoughts on the inside of us, right? Now, things that are gonna affect the way that we think. Again, Romans 12, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be like the culture that's around you, right? Christianity has always been countercultural. In other words, what's going on in the world and what's going on in the kingdom of God are two totally different things. So don't be like the world. The culture is going to try to press us into their mold. Right? And in fact, you know, today we've got the cancel culture, we got the wokeness, we got the political correctness. If you don't go with culture, you know, they want to cancel you. They want to push you out. You're, you're totally irrelevant. Right? But the church has always been countercultural. Right? Jesus is speaking in the book of Revelation to one of the churches. And this is Revelation 2 and verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, in our culture, tolerance is considered like the extreme virtue, right? But Jesus said, no, 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 no. He says, I have this against you that you tolerate, right? He said, well, well, in in our culture, well, it's okay for you. You know, if if you, that's not my reality. That's not my truth, but that's your truth. That's okay for you. Jesus said, no, 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 no. There is real truth. There is truth. There is right and there is wrong, right? He said, I have this against you, 
that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet and by her teaching misleads my servants into sexual immorality, into eating food sacrificed to idols. You know, as a born-again believer, right, we are to speak the truth in love. Right? Truth? I mean, we have a culture that doesn't even believe there is absolute truth, but there is. We're to speak the truth, not to condemn somebody, but we're to speak it in love to enlighten them, right? And uh, we have to recognize that. We are not to be like the culture around us, right? Then uh, another thing that just has a tremendous impact on us is our friends. The Bible says the righteous should choose their friends carefully because the way of the wicked will lead them astray. Uh, Jimmy Evans, who's, who's a, considered to be a marriage expert, has the most quotable on, on this subject that I, I've ever heard. He says, divorce is a communicable disease. He says, if you find someone who's getting a divorce, almost without exception, they have friends that are telling them, you know what? You ought to divorce them. You can do better than that. They're not treating you right. This is where you should go. You should do this. You should do that. They've got friends that are encouraging them. Right? So we want to be sure that we choose our friends carefully. This doesn't mean you can't be around ungodly people, but you need to be sure you're influencing them and they are not influencing you. Right? In Psalm, <coughs> excuse me, Psalms 101, verse 2, he says, I'll make it verse 3. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the works of those who fall away. It will not cling to me. Notice, I'll set nothing wicked before my eyes. It will not cling to me. How many of you know you can see things and they just stay with you? Four of you. Come on. Proverbs 4. My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ears to my sayings. What are you hearing? Don't let them depart from your eyes. What are you watching? Keep them in the midst of your heart for their life to those who find them and health to all their flesh. Proverbs 6, 23, for the commandment is a lamp, the law of law is light, and the reproofs of correction are the way of life to keep you from, it mentions the evil woman. There's a lot of evil men too, but here's what it's saying. It says God's word and godly friends that'll speak. You know, you don't need a friend that'll just let you, well, whatever. You don't need any whatever friends, right? You need friends that if you're going in the wrong direction, they're going to slap you, right? They will slap you and say, hey, that's not for you. You're a child of God. You're an ambassador for the kingdom of God. You're the righteousness of God in Christ. And this is not the way that you're going and I'm going. That's the type of friends you need. You don't need a whatever friend, right? You don't need those. You need people that are going to say something. So the Bible says the word of God and the reproofs of correction, that friend of yours who's going to say, hey, this is not the way to go, right? They'll keep you out of trouble. They will keep you from, right? Um, one, one of the things that got Samson into trouble was that he, he was a loner. In fact, it's interesting, there is not one time in the whole Bible that you find him that he is not alone or with somebody who's bringing compromise, right? 
Let me just give you a little story about Samson. Uh, some of you don't know the whole story, but, but he, he's a young man. He's probably about 20 years old. He, he leaves town, and he, he only probably took a five-mile jog. And, and he went to a town called Timnath. But he crossed a border between Israel and the Philistines. And when he got to Timnath, he saw this, this chick, and she was hot. All right. She was a babe. And he's like, oh. So he goes home and he says, hey, I saw this girl. I want her for my wife. Go get her. And his parents are like, hey, can't you find a girl anywhere in Israel? Do you have to go and find somebody that worships Dagon? Now, Dagon is the God of the Philistines. And Dagon, by the way, is a male mermaid. Can you think of anything uglier than that? I mean, he's a man from the waist up and a fish from the waist down. And he's like, this is what he says. He says, she looks good to me. Go get her. She looks good to me. How many of you know looks good will not last? Now, you need more than looks good. Right? And the proof is in, in, in Samson's life. He gets married and it lasts 10 days. That's about how long good looks last. If that's all there is. All right. So about 10 years passed, and the Bible says he goes to Gaza, and he sees a prostitute, and he goes and he spends some time with this prostitute. He gets up at midnight, and he goes over to the city gates, and he picks up the gates with the posts. So this is basically like pulling up two telephone poles and carrying a semi. And he walks up the mountain to Hebron. He carries them 20 miles. Now listen, he's alone. He doesn't have that friend that slaps him and says, hey, what are you doing here? You're a man of God. You need to get out of here. He's all alone, right? Now, here's my, my question for you. When he pulls up the posts and the gates and walks up to Hebron, how many of you will give me, that's supernatural, Right? right. Now, here's my question. Did his life please God? No. See, here's what people think. People think, well, I, I, I get in church and, and I lift my hands and I worship and I feel God, so everything must be all right. God answers my prayers, so everything must be all right. You know, God's using me, so everything must be all right. You see, just because God blesses you and touches you does not mean everything's all right. Right? When you're living contrary to the word of God, God loves you and God might bless you and you may sense God's presence, but that doesn't mean everything you're doing is all right. right? And so many people are deceived in this area. Right? Ten years pass. He goes to the Valley of Sorek, sees a lady by the name of Delilah, starts having a relationship with her. And you know the end of the story. She betrays him. His eyes are taken out. And he ends up, you know, just kind of doing the work of a mule, going around and around in a circle in a wine press. Right? See, what he didn't conquer when he was young destroyed him when he was old. Say it again. What he didn't conquer when he was young destroyed him when he was old. Right? And, 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 and sin can be like a little lion cub. You know, when it's young, you can take it for a walk. 
But the day's going to come when it's going to take you for a walk and then have you for lunch. Right? That's what sin's like. That's what sin's like. So, uh, so there's really, I think, three lessons from Samson. You weren't meant to live life alone. When Jesus sent out his disciples, it was always two by two. You need to be in relationship. Over 30 times in the New Testament alone, it talks and, and it says one another. Forgive one another. Pray for one another. Build one another up. Encourage one another. One another. One. I mean, you know, you can't one another alone. Right? The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. Right? So lesson number one is you weren't meant to do this alone. And, and, and if you're online and, and you're all alone, uh, that's not the way God meant it to be. We're so glad you're there, but you need to get in relationship. And I want to encourage you to get in church. Right? Secondly, just because you feel God's presence, because God uses you or God blesses you, does not mean that your life is pleasing to God. Samson, supernatural power, but yet his life was not pleasing to God. And the thing you do not conquer when you're young ultimately destroys you when you're old. Um, I, I have talked to some of our guys on our staff, and it just so bothers me. All the things that are coming out, people did not take and get victory over something when they're young, and now they're old, and that thing is destroying their life. All right. Then one last thought before we, uh, before we close. In Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin because he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt for he looked to his reward. He was able to turn his back on everything that Egypt had to offer. Now, he's living in Pharaoh's household. Anything the world had to offer was at his fingertips. And he said, here's all the world has to offer, and here's what God has to offer. Reproach, persecution, and an eternal reward. And he said, I will take the reproach and the affliction and the eternal reward over everything this world has to offer. You know, the Bible says to set your affection on things above and not on the things of this world. You know, your life, the hundred years or so you're going to live is just like a vapor that's there for a moment and it's gone in light of eternity. The Bible says this in Hebrews 11. It says, he, this Abraham, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city or looked for a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was looking for the city of God. He was looking for heaven. He was looking to his eternal rewards. Again, in Hebrews 11, women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, this one has, has had me, my mind going for 40 years. So here's people who could escape persecution, but decide I don't want to escape. I'd rather die a martyr so that I can have a better resurrection. You know, the Bible says there is a martyr's crown. 
And what else do martyrs get? I don't know, but they're up there at the throne, the Bible says in the book of Revelation. And they are looking to their eternal reward. I decided I want to die for preaching. I mean, I get shot preaching. I want to be a martyr. I thought that'd go over really good. <laughs> but come on, eternal reward. Hebrews, let me finish with Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, well, that's the King James. I'm going to use message. Do you see what this means? Now, the, this, this is following Hebrews 11. And Hebrews 11 is all of the great men and women of faith and all the things that they've done. Right? Now, the King James says that we have a cloud of witnesses. Right? Now, now, the word there for cloud of witnesses, it's the, same, it's the, it's the word that they would use in the Roman Colosseums. Now, the seats that were way up on top were called the cloud seats. And that's the word that, that Paul is using here, or the writer of Hebrews is using. He's saying that the saints that are in heaven are kind of looking over the banisters of heaven, and they're watching you and me run our spiritual race. He says, we've got this great cloud of witnesses right? You see what this means? All these pioneers who blaze the way, all these veterans cheering us on, right? It means we'd better get with it. Strip down, start running, never quit. No extra spiritual fat, no parasite sins. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished the race we're in. Study how he did it, because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way, the cross, the shame, whatever. And now he's there in a place of honor right alongside God. And when you find yourself flagging in your faith, go over the story again, item by item, that long litany of hostilities he plowed through. That'll shoot adrenaline into your souls. Now, here's what it's saying. It's saying Jesus, I've had people say this, Jesus came to die on the cross. Not really. Jesus wasn't looking at the cross. Jesus was looking beyond the cross. He was looking to a resurrection. He was looking to sitting at the right hand of God. He was looking at the harvest of souls that he was going to purchase and redeem for God. So he wasn't looking at the cross. He was looking beyond the cross. And that was why he was able to put up with anything and everything that came his way. And the Bible says we should look at what Jesus did, right? Because we need to do the same thing. We need to look beyond this life. Set your affections on things above, the Bible says in Colossians, right? Not on the things of this world. When we set our affections and all we do is look at this world, we're going to miss out on what God has for us. I, I, I love what it says when it says, it says, see that you receive your full reward. Now, heaven is not a government housing project. You know that, right? right? Now, you are not saved by what you do. You're saved by grace through faith. So grace is unmerited favor. Grace is what God has done, right? And faith is our responding to what God's done. You are not saved by what you do. But listen really careful. You will be rewarded in heaven for what you do. Got that? You don't get saved by what you do, but you are rewarded for what you do. So Revelation 22, this is Jesus. He says, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me 
to give to everyone. That's you. That's me. According to his work. Everybody say that at work. He's giving to everyone according to his work. Now, we aren't going to go there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, talk about when you and I are going to be judged by God. Right? And this is what it says, that some will receive a reward, but that some will be saved as through fire and have zero reward. Got that? You, you can make heaven and have zero rewards when you get to heaven. Right? So... Isaiah 62, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him. What's with Jesus? His reward. In, in Revelation 22, my favorite translation says it like this. Jesus said, behold, I'm coming and my paycheck is with me to give to everyone according to what he's done. Right? You're not saved by what you do, but you will be saved by what you do. Isaiah says this, I've labored in vain and I've spent my strength for nothing and in vain. He said, yeah, we, we can focus on the things of this world. He said, and, and our labor, as far as eternity is concerned, is in vain. There is no reward whatsoever. Right? So one last thought. You don't decide what you're going to do in the day of temptation. Right? You decide before. Right? You decide before. You present your body to God before. And, and you say, God, I'm your servant. I'm living to please you, right? I'm not moved by how I feel, right? I'm moved by my love for you. I'm moved by the spirit of God. I'm moved by the word of God. I'm moved by faith. The just shall live by faith. One, one youth pastor said it this way. He said, at this stage of your life, your sexual drive is so powerful that you must be prepared in advance to control it. When you go on a date, he said, you'll be guided either by your plans or by your glands. <laughs> I didn't mean to end on something funny, but, <laughs> but how many of you know what? It's true. Hey, you make a commitment to God beforehand. You present your body as a living sacrifice. And if that body gets off that altar, you put that body back on that altar. God, I give you my body. I give you all of my, my faculties. I am yours. Say, would you please bow your heads for just a moment? I, I've heard it said, and I, I've been saying it for decades, that the Bible has all of the answers to the questions of life. And it is the truth. But the Bible doesn't just have the answers. The Bible has got the greatest questions. Let me give you just a couple of them. James 4, what is your life? If I came up to you today and I said, what's your life? Some of you would say, well, my life's a wreck. Somebody else might say, my life's great. Somebody would say, my life's happy. Somebody else would say, my life's my family. My life's my job. My life's going somewhere. My life's going nowhere. But the Bible answers the question, what is your life? It says, your life is but a vapor. It appears for just a moment and it's gone. You get up in the morning, you walk outside, you breathe, and you can see your breath, and three seconds later, it's gone. And in light of eternity, the time that you and I live on this earth is just like that vapor. It's here for just a second, and it's gone. And then Peter, in chapter 4, asked this question, what will the end be? What will the end be? 
Well, it is a multiple choice question, but it's just an A or a B. It's A, an eternity in God's presence, in a, in a place of joy. Or B, eternity separated from God in a place of torment. But those are the only two options. There isn't a third. And then in Acts 16, here's the question. What must I do to be saved? I went to church for 20 years, and I never, never heard one time an explanation on how to be saved. Not once. I did not know. I was 20 years old before I ever heard. And this is what, this is what Bruce said to me that, that night. He said, would you like to be forgiven and know you're right with God on your way to heaven? And when he said that, this is what I thought. I thought, that is the stupidest question anyone has ever asked. Because who wouldn't want to be forgiven? Who wouldn't want to be right with God? Who wouldn't want to know they're on their way to heaven? And, and I said, of course, but you can't know that. And he took me to Romans 10, 13, which says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then a few verses before, Romans 10, 10, if you will confess with your mouth, Jesus is your Lord. And believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. And I prayed a prayer right there with him 48 years ago. Changed my life, still working today. Now, I want to pray that prayer right now with everybody. So I'm going to ask you, if you came with somebody, to take their hand if you can. If you're online and, and you're watching and you can take somebody's hand, that would be great. We're going to pray this prayer together. And I want you to make these words your own, but I want you to say this out loud. Just say, oh God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. And I believe he rose again. I give him all of my heart and all of my life. I hold nothing back. I turn my back on my old life. I'm not living for myself any longer. I'm living for Jesus. He's my king. He's my Lord. And I thank you. You've heard my prayer. My past is gone. I'm a new person in Christ. Part of your kingdom. Today and forever. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day, and we will see you again soon.